Welcome to the Hill City Church Podcast. We are a church family located in Springfield, Missouri. You can learn more about us and support our ministries at hillcitysgf.org. In 2 Samuel 11 and 12, it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab and some of the servants of David and among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guests who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. He said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. This is the word of the Lord. This morning. Good morning. My name is Brad. It's an honor to serve as the lead teaching pastor here at Hill City. I have no hook for you this morning. If that story itself, straight from God's word, doesn't hook you, I can do no better than this. I mean, this story has all of the elements. We see power, we see weakness, we see secrets, we see schemes, we see lust, we see adultery, we see murder, we see confrontation, we see a climax of the story. Are you with us? Like, this is like a movie. I hope that you are in. Now, by way of review, we've been in a series called The Throne where Israel asked for a king, it was idolatry that they asked for a king. God said, let's give him a king. He gives them Saul. Saul screwed a ton of things up. He goes after David, said, I will find a man after my own heart and I will make him king. Well, he made David king. David spent a lot of time running from Saul. We pick up the story here where Saul is is dead. We learned that last week. Now David is king. He is reigning. 
This is a familiar Bible story, but what is this story really about? First of all, let me be clear and say this is, this is not just some made-up story. This, these are real people. This is a real scenario. But how in the world did we get here? I mean, after all, th- this was the man after God's own heart. How did we get here? How did we get from the man who stood before a giant and said, I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts? How did we get from the man who who wrote some of the most beautiful songs ever written where he says, the Lord is my rock and my refuge? How do we get from a man who last week was so full of grace that he's, and he pointed to Yahweh and said, it was the Lord who gave us this. All credit went to the Lord. How do we get from that to murder and deception and adultery? Well, I don't want to answer that yet, or that way you guys... We'll just walk out of here and leave and be like, all right, we got it. So, but I will answer that. But we start in chapter 11. And it was King David who believed a lie that we are all susceptible to, and that is that he thought that he was in control. See, power will do that to a person. Idolatry will do that to a person. Listen, and... Hill City Church, here we are. There are a lot of people in here who have positions of power, positions of influence. Many of you don't, but you will have a position of power. You will have a position of influence. Just being an American almost puts you in that scenario. I mean, you're already filthy rich. But may we not make the mistake and think that we are in control. We would do well to just remember one of the foundational truths of Hill City Kids, and that is that God is in charge of everything. See, David must have forgotten. Well, how do we know? Well, we pick up in verse 1 of chapter 11. This is a big giveaway. And in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David was the king. He was not out to battle. He should have been on the battlefield with his men. But right here in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all of Israel. And they were doing good. They were winning. But David was supposed to be there with them. See, David thought he was in control. He thought he was above being where he was supposed to be. David was not on a correct path. Quite literally, his feet were not where they were supposed to be. If you guys remember how we started off this series, we started off with the idea of of idolatry. We talked about idolatry in the hearts of of Israel, and, and idolatry is in our hearts. And we talked about the motif throughout the Bible of being on a correct path. And here in verse 1, we see that David's feet are not where God would have them be. That always leads to trouble. He was not on the right path. And then verse 2, like, I love how it starts off. And it happened. (laughs) It happened late one afternoon. What happened? Well, King David, who thought he was in control, and he saw, he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. But then he didn't just see, okay, woman, very beautiful, good. God 
you did a great thing there. Good. And I'm going to turn and I'm just going to go on and acknowledge that there's some beauty there. That would have been a proper response. That would have been an appropriate response. No, no. Then verse 3 says, then he sent. He saw and then he sent. He inquired about the woman. And one said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of, who cares what comes after that? But it said Uriah, the Hittite. He sent. So David sent messengers, and verse 4 says this. And he took her. And some of you are like, oh, 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 I remember when Samuel came to the people and he said, you want a king? Here's what God says about the king. He will take, he will take, he will take, he will take. And we go, oh, that was Saul. No, no, no. This is any king outside of God will take. Anything that we put on the throne will take and will take and will take. And here we see David. He saw, he sent, and he took Uriah's wife. Now listen, we got to go here for clarity. David was the king. He is in a position of power. Power like we don't even, like we can't imagine because we don't understand kingship, especially in the ancient world. When the king says, go do this, you did that. You didn't really have an option. If you didn't do what the king said, you died. Why am I telling you this? What we witness here in the taking of Bathsheba is an egregious abuse of power. It's actually sexual abuse. So we're not going to waste our time with some silly conversation about Bathsheba taking a bath and how she has some sort of ownership in this. No, she doesn't. You got to understand the ancient world. Number one, when she was taking a bath, she was doing exactly what her Bible told her to do. She had, she had just come through her time of the month, and she was purifying herself from her uncleanliness. That's what the Bible means when it says that. She was doing what the Bible told her to do. Secondly, the men were supposed to be at war. They weren't even supposed to be there for eyes to see her. I've just heard some silly, silly stuff about Bathsheba, and we're not going to do that here. When the king says, you come, that's exactly what you did. David thought he was in control. Uriah's at battle. This chick is beautiful. I want her. Go get her for me. And here we see an abusive and adulterous act. That's what we read of here in chapter 11. Sexual sin. So here's what I'm going to do right now. I'm going to step out of the story, and we're going to go here this morning. I want to talk to you about sexual sin. I think most, if not all, I would probably land in the camp of all, but just, just 
most sexual sin actually comes from a place that is deep within us that has been wounded. So before we like jump on and get super angry at David, let, let's talk about this. I believe it comes from deep woundedness. Whatever that sexual sin might be, whether it's just, just, just sex outside of marriage, maybe it's that you've had multiple sex partners, maybe it's that you are hooked on pornography, but all that I believe comes from woundedness of the soul related to our past. And if that's you this morning, I have a word for you, and it's this, Jesus already knows what's going on, and Jesus loves you. That's what you need to hear this morning. But I don't believe this is any different for David. So let's go back into history, right, to his childhood. Samuel comes to town. I told you we were gonna come back here. Samuel comes to town. He tells Jesse, one of your sons is going to be king. They knew who Samuel was. Jesse doesn't even put David in the lineup. Remember this? And, and Samuel's like, no, no, give me an, you got to have another son. Is there another son? And Jesse says, well, there's just an insignificant, worthless one out in the fields, but surely he's not king. Like, Listen, this is what David's father thought of him. And if he said it to Samuel, this would have been something David would have been hearing his whole life. But then you go to the battlefield where David takes some food to his brothers and his, even the, the brothers start talking down to him about what, how insignificant and silly and stupid he is. All the brothers were doing, they were just following their daddy's lead and treating David the same way that they saw their dad treat David. And listen, without question, David had woundedness of his soul based on his past. Why am I telling you this? Because some of you need to hear this this morning. Listen, our society is so sexually broken and jacked up. I, don't, I mean, I don't even, right, that's not even up for debate. Amen? And we're not immune. And I say this this morning because I don't believe this morning but if you're struggling with maybe, let's say, pornography or you're, you're hooked on it even, I don't believe that you're some kind of like weird pervert. I don't think that you're some kind of like degenerate sex addict if, if you've had an affair or if you've had multiple sex partners. What I, I believe all those things happen from deep places of pain. And some of you this morning, you are so weighed down by guilt and shame because you just can't understand why you did what you did or why you continue to do what you do. And I just want you to know this morning that there is Listen, there is hope. There is hope. And these wounds that I'm talking about, these wounds of the soul, most likely they're not even your fault. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. I am not saying that sin isn't a big deal. I am not saying, well, all of us are sexually broken and there's sexual sin and so, so all of us are guilty of that, so none of us are really guilty of that. I'm not saying that. Take sexual out of it. Sin is actually horrible. It's way worse than we could actually imagine. So let me, that, that's just some truth that we need to hear this morning. It's way worse than we could imagine. But what I am saying is there can be things inside of us. Our souls can be wounded and it's not our fault. But I've said this before, I want to say it again. While there are things that are not our fault, there are things that indeed are our responsibility. And there's hope. 
there's a place to take this. I'm going to get to that in a minute, but I want to let you guys know before I get back into the story, like, I'm here for you. Our staff and elders are here for you. We have ladies on staff if, if you're more comfortable talking to a woman about some of this. We have, we, we have a godly, professional counselors now that we can get you with. I'm, I'm, I'm telling you this because, listen, this is my job. Like, some of you are devastatingly close to disaster. Like, you're on the edge of a cliff and you're about to go over with a decision you're down a path. And my prayer is that through God's word and God's love and God's people this morning that you will be intercepted before you do that. There's hope. Back to the story. So David thinks he's in control. He took Bathsheba. Verse 5 starts out like this. And the woman conceived. And she sent to David and she said, I'm pregnant. Uh-oh. But instead of a proper response like from David where it's, uh-oh, I just learned I am not in control. That's not what he concluded. He thought, no, nah, I'm still in control. So what does he do? Okay, this is Uriah's wife. He's out on battle. Let's get Uriah home. Listen, dude's been on the battlefield for a while. I know what he's wanting. He's going to come home, get in a shower, splash on some Old Spice. Like this is, this will be perfect. Uriah comes home. David's like, go, go be with your wife. But verse 9 through 13 of chapter 11 says, no, no, Uriah, he didn't do that. Why would Uriah not do that? Because Uriah was a man of honor. We can understand Uriah. Uriah actually makes sense. And here's how I'm, I'm reading this, and I had some guys come to my mind, right? Like, I love our United States soldiers. I just do, okay? I got some patriotism in me that would probably make some of you uncomfortable, but that's just how it is, okay? Listen, like Marcus Luttrell, they made a movie about him. Chris Kyle, like I love those dudes. And you hear these guys talk about being on the battlefield, and they talk about their, their, their fellow brothers on the battlefield, those who died and those who they fought with, and there's like this bond, right? Like we have soldiers in this gathering right now who have fought and, and I've heard some of the Hill City soldiers just talk about their brothers, and there's just this thing. And Uriah comes home, and he's like, I will not do this with my wife while my brothers are out here bleeding because he was a man of honor. Uh-oh. Plan A didn't work, and David thought, no, I'm still in control. Let's go to plan B. Okay, we're going to send Uriah back to the battlefield. I'm going to have Joab put him on the front lines, the most dangerous place you could be. I'm going to say pull all the soldiers back and make sure that Uriah is killed on the battlefield. Now listen, if you think what I said about Bathsheba was crazy and how like you did what the king said or you died, listen, Bathsheba did what the king said. 
the messenger, right? The messenger who came back to David and was like, hey, this is uh, Uriah's wife. David says, go get her. That messenger could have been like, no, I'm not going to do that. She's married. Nope, the messenger did what the king said. The first guy in the story who didn't do what the king said, hey, go sleep with your wife. No, I won't do it. He's dead now. See how that works? Uriah is dead. David is told about it. Message comes back to David. Hey, it's done. David says to Joab, hey, he says, hey, don't, don't let this thing trouble you. And David goes, okay, that was a close one. We got through it. I'll take Bathsheba as a wife. No harm, no foul. Let's chalk it up to war. Now, there's an interesting thing we see in chapter 11 as you read it. As you guys reading through it, you're like, wait, where's Yahweh? Where's the Lord? Where's God here? He seems to be absent. Because here's what David always did. He always would inquire of the Lord. Yahweh, should I pursue? Should I go get the Amalekites? Yahweh, what do I do with the Philistines? Lord, God, what do I do with Saul? Please deliver me. He always sought the Lord. Not in chapter 11. Beautiful woman. Yahweh, should I pursue? No, that's Uriah's wife. Why did he not? Why, why did he not inquire of the Lord? Because he knew what the answer would be. See, here's what happens. Let's just get practical. When we quit seeking God and what God says through his word, through his people, it should sound an alarm in our hearts. We are very likely to make a very, very unwise decision. David did not inquire of the Lord. And here's the thing with God, and you need to know this this morning, because I know where some of you are in life. Sometimes it appears that he is nowhere to be found. Where's God in this story? It seems that he's not here, but he's always there. The very last sentence of chapter 11 is a massive, massive sentence. The last verse of chapter 11 says this, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Hebrew scholars believe that there is actually a better and more literal translation. One of them, Dale Davis, says this. Most English translations give more idiomatic renderings of verse 25 and 27, which I just read 27. We'll look at 25 in a minute. But what happens is they obscure what jumps off the page in Hebrew. So basically what that's saying is our English doesn't cause uh, to jump off the page what the Hebrew causes to jump off the page. Here's the more literal translation. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. The literal translation is this. The thing that David had done was evil in Yahweh's eyes. 
So if you go back to what he told Joab, he's like, don't let this thing trouble you. It's the, it's the same thing. So what really David told Joab was, don't let this be evil in your eyes. This is just war. The problem is, this was evil in Yahweh's eyes. David did not get to decide what should and shouldn't be evil in people's eyes. But he thought that he did. So let me tell you a very important truth about God. There are times when he seems to be silent, but there is never, ever a time when he is sightless. He sees everything. Now that is a gracious, gracious statement. That's awesome. He's there all the time. He sees everything. That's really good news. But this thing, it was evil in his eyes. Jeremiah 23 says this. It's the Lord asking this question. Can a man hide himself in hiding places so that I do not see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill the heavens and the earth, declares the Lord? Oh, there's grace in that truth. Amen, Hill City? Okay, doesn't stop there. Proverbs chapter 15. The eyes of the Lord are in every place watching the evil and the good. There is grace in that verse right there. Amen, Hill City? He's everywhere. He sees us. I don't want you to be scared this morning. I want you to be like, God sees me. He sees me? Oh yeah, he sees you. But I haven't answered the question yet. How did we get here? How do we get from the guy who slayed the giant? How do we get to the greatest poet to ever live who wrote things about the Lord Almighty? How did we get from that to adultery and deception and murder? How did we do that? The answer is pretty simple. One step off of the correct path at a time. I've said this. Many times, I'm going to say it again, I've never met someone who, who wakes up on a Wednesday morning and is like, I think I'm going to ruin my life today. It's not how it works. But I need to talk to us about a very, very important truth. And some of you are not going to like to hear this. Adultery and murder actually lies in every human heart in this room. If you hear this story and you think, nah, never. If you hear this story and be like, well, but I'm saved. Like, I'm a Christ follower. Don't care. That does not make you immune to this. You're like, what? It just doesn't. If you think, listen, if any of us thinks for one second that we are incapable of adultery or murder, we are already a step or two too far down a very dangerous path. Don't be so self-righteous. Like, let's just be honest. Do we think anyone in here is like closer to Yahweh than David? This is King David. They've written more about David in the Bible than anyone else. If he is capable, you 
and I are also capable. Brad, why are you telling me this, though? Like, I'm not telling you that to scare you. I'm not saying we got to walk around, like, in fear. I'm just telling us this because I want all of us to remain close to God. I want all of us to always seek the Lord and what he would have for us. I want us to remain around God's people, in God's presence, in God's word. That's what we can do. That's what we should do. It's how we have wisdom so that we won't do what was evil in the sight of Yahweh, so that we won't do what's evil in God's eyes. So David still thinks he's in control. He's, okay, no one's going to know about this. The very first four, five words in chapter 12. Well, let's just start with the first three. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. We can't brush past this. This is God's grace and the Lord. The Lord shows up and he sends Nathan, what should we see in this? Grace. What about grace? Grace pursues us. But it doesn't just stop in a pursuit. Grace, God in his grace, will actually expose us. This is really, really good news. Why, how is that good news, Brad? Like, I don't want to be exposed. No, it's good news because you need to know this morning that God loves you so much. He loves his kids way too much to let them remain comfortable in sin. And we might succeed for a little while in our unfaithfulness, but God will soon come after you and I. And I'm not saying that to scare you. That's good, good news. God will come after you. He pursues you to save you, but he doesn't stop pursuing you once you are saved. He is in constant pursuit of you. That's really, really good news, Hill City. Grace pursues Listen, fellas, let me just talk to the dudes. What do you think, like, what do you think Manscursion's all about? We can spit and snort and sit around a fire? No. Listen, we need Nathans in our lives that will look and be like, hey, let's talk. Sign up for Manscursion if you haven't. Listen, where would we be? I'm talking me, I'm talking you. Where would we be if grace had not pursued us? Spend some time thinking about that today. So here's what David's going to find out. He's going to find out, uh-oh, I'm not in control. Actually, Yahweh is in control. And in chapter 12, Nathan comes on the scene, and I want to take you some, take, go with me, come with me, okay? Nathan takes David to a courtroom. See, here's what happens. Here's how kingship worked. Kings weren't just like, sit on a throne, feed me grapes, right? They, 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 were, they were judges. They judged. 
They were jury. They were executioners. They had, they, they had to rule, okay? So what would happen is, is Nathan or other people would bring different uh, cases before David, and he would judge on those cases. So Nathan, being so smart, he comes. He's like, I got a case for you. There's a rich guy. He had a bunch of sheep. But he needed to feed somebody. So what he did is he went and stole the only sheep that a poor man had. And David's thinking, this is going on in my kingdom? Oh, how smart is Nathan? How smart is grace that it finds us where it needs to find us? It's a funny thing about Nathan. He approaches this in a very effective way. Imagine if Nathan would have barged in and be like, listen here, you scumbag. You, had a, you committed adultery and you murdered a dude? Do you think David would have responded well to that? Let's take some notes from Nathan, shall we? No, he just presents a story. And David responds in verse 5 and 6. As the Lord lives, the man who did this thing, this, this, this guy who stole the only sheep that this poor man had, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this thing deserves to die. Not only that, he ought to restore the lamb fourfold. Because he did this thing. I have no pity on him. What does David do? He just judges a case. And here's what he does. He actually judges the case justly. Yep, he was right. This should have happened to that guy. And Nathan says, David, you're the man. Like, I don't know what music Hollywood would put there, but like, dun, dun, dun. I don't know. And then we see grace recap, verse 7. Nathan's like, David, you're the man. Come on, like the God of Israel, he anointed you to be king over Israel. He delivered you. He gave you your master's house, your master's wives, and the arms. He gave you everything. He would have given you anything else that you asked for. Nathan's like grace upon grace upon grace. But then you did this thing. And listen to me. There will be consequences for David. Because sin always comes with consequences, but I want us to jump to verse 13 because this is what I want us to get today. See, David's legacy is not that he killed a big dude and cut his head off. His legacy isn't his kingship. His legacy, I wouldn't even say, is, are, are the beautiful songs that he wrote. His legacy it's verse 13. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. His legacy is that he gave us a model of confession and repentance. He agreed with Yahweh. That's what confession is. Then he repented. He turned from his wicked ways. He'll say, 
Let's be clear about this. Godliness does not mean there is less repentance in our lives. It actually means that there is more. David gives us this model. Go read Psalm 51. I believe it's the greatest thing that David did ever write. We don't have time to unpack it today. David confesses, he repents. Now listen to what Nathan tells him. And Nathan said to David, it's the greatest news you're ever going to hear in your life. Perk up. The Lord has put away your sin. And you shall not die. What? See, we read this story, we think, well, this is a story about adultery. This is a story about murder. This is a story about deceit. It isn't. This is a story about grace. This is a story about what God does even in our unfaithfulness. This is a story about assurance of pardon. Do you know that you can have that this morning? We use that term, you can be assured that you are covered. It's not just this story, though. The whole Bible is about grace. Listen, David is written of in the New Testament. You can go to Romans chapter 4. His legacy isn't adultery and murder. You can read about him in Hebrews, the people of the most faithful of the faithful. It says nothing in Hebrews about murder and adultery. It talks about how faithful that he was. You can go to Matthew and you can read the genealogy of Jesus and guess who's there? Bathsheba. It says nothing about this. That's not the legacy. How is it possible? Doesn't seem right. That's because there's another courtroom that we have to pay attention to today. If you're serving communion, I want you to come forward. See, Nathan took David to a courtroom. And it ended with, you shall not die. But there's a courtroom in John chapter 19. Oh, you're all so familiar with this courtroom. But might we be reminded this morning. David, you're the man. You're the man. And you shall not die. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns, the purple robe. Pilate said to them, behold the man. Sound familiar? You're the man, David. Behold the man. in this courtroom of John there were, there were no Nathans there were no Nathans to yell you will not die there should have been a thousand Nathans yelling he will not die but instead the chief priests and all the people in charge they yelled crucify him crucify him why 
Why did this happen? So that people in 2022 could get together and sing things like, there is a fountain filled with blood that's drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners who plunge beneath that flood, they lose all of their guilty stains, all of them. The murderous stains, the adulterous stains, whatever stains are there, we lose them all. No one told Jesus, you shouldn't, you shall not die. And the reason no one did that was in order that you and I might be able to live so that you and I have a way to not be condemned. Listen, we are capable of adultery. We are capable of murder, but it's worse than that. This Jesus comes on the scene. He actually says, you are guilty of murder and you are guilty of adultery. When he says, if you've looked at a woman lustfully, you're guilty of adultery. If you've looked at someone and hated them, you're guilty of murder. Why am I telling you this? Because Jesus comes on the scene and says, we're all guilty. It points to our need for a savior. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We love that verse. The problem is we put the period in the wrong spot. We say, there is therefore now no condemnation, period. That's an incomplete and incorrect statement. There is condemnation apart from Christ Jesus. And I love you enough to tell you that. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And he offers forgiveness this morning. Won't you stand with me? It's by his blood that we can be forgiven. It's why we come to the table every week. That's what this cup represents. The way that we can have forgiveness. And I don't know if you're like, listen, this is what I do. Let me just be fully transparent. I I slip into a skewed view of forgiveness. I treat forgiveness the same way I do like a gas pump. Like I put my card in, I pump my gas, I drive on until I run out and I come back and I do it again. And sometimes I look at forgiveness that way. You need to know this morning, forgiveness is not a gas pump. You don't come here to be forgiven, then okay, man, I had a horrible week, I'm gonna come back and be forgiven. Forgiveness is not a gas pump, forgiveness is a miracle. And I want us to see that before we come to the table today. Listen, I have a God who has passed over my sin, all my sin, my sexual sin, my greed, all my sin. He's passed over that sin because I'm covered by the blood of his son. And there should not be a day in my life that I don't get chills over the miracle of forgiveness. So here's what I want to call us to today. I want us to come to the table with goosebumps. Forgiveness is there. Let's eat.